Warning, binge mode contains adult content. This one doesn't really. This was recorded at LeakyCon, but, you know, I think it just as a general rule of thumb, we do use adult content on this podcast, so be warned. Certainly the social media extensions of this interview, which you should definitely check out on all binge mode social platforms, contained quite a bit of adult content. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know whether Weatherby ever came home or who Weatherby even is, please proceed with extreme caution. And now, what you're about to hear is an interview with Chris Rankin, better known as Percy Weasley, which was recorded at LeakyCon in Dallas. Our good friend Chris. Move over, our good friend Tom. That's right, Tom. Hello, Leaky Khan. Hello. I am Mallory Rubin. I'm Jason Concepcion. We co-host Binge Mode Harry Potter for The Ringer. Great website. And we are delighted. Delighted. Absolutely delighted to be here today to talk about Errol and Cauldron Bottoms with Chris Rankin. You know him Hello. as Percy Weasley. You know him as Weatherby. Weatherby. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? Is Starkid on after us? Why are there so many people here? What's going on? They're here for you, Weatherby. Ah. Yeah. We imperioed Barty Crouch, and he had them all show up yeah. today to talk to you about your passions for the Ministry of Magic. Well, in June 2004, I wrote a report. <laughs> I'll try and be interesting, I promise. Before we get to the ministry and your uh, very successful career thank as you. a yes, thank you. politician, we wanted to go back to the beginning. You've probably told the origin story of becoming Percy Weasley more times than Percy Weasley talked about Cauldron Bottoms, and yet we're gonna, we're gonna ask you to do it one more time. So on your website, you yes. have these wonderful FAQ posts where you talk about some of these questions that people have asked you so yes. many times. Check out this website. Yes. Wonderful. Chris Rankin. Hashtag FAQ off. ChrisRankin.co.uk. Yes. yes. And one of the things that you explore on there is how, as a 16-year-old, you sent in your letter yeah. to pursue the role of Percy, and that you sort of went through this checklist in your mind when thinking about what yeah. character to go after. Ron, okay, I'm too old. Harry, everybody's going to be going for that. Yeah. Twins, definitely not. Just one of me. So, <laughs> and I'm not Lindsay Lohan, so I can't do that whole parent trap thing. Uh, was the choice to pursue Percy strictly process of elimination, or was there something about the character that you were truly drawn to? Um, <laughs> if I'm honest, it was simply a process of what part am I most likely to get. Right. But that in itself is quite a Percy thing, it is. I think. Very practical. Um, I'd worked out the best way to achieve success and gone with it. Um, yeah, no, honestly, it was like a friend of mine who I went to youth theatre with, uh, who was also ginger and was like two years younger than me or so. I think he was like 14 and I was 16 at the time. And he was like, he was dead set. He was going to write into this thing and apply for Ron. And he was like, wouldn't it be really cool if we were brothers? So the kind of, 
there was a kind of thought process that went, if we're going to kind of a, not apply together, but if we're both going to go for this and he wants Ron, then the only one that I could do is Percy. And yeah, it fits. I was six. I was the right age for Percy. I was a prefect at school and I was ginger. So it kind of seemed like an seemed like a naturally obvious choice to make. But also he felt like the only other person that nobody would want to play. And I, mean, I mean that and then I was like, no, nobody's going to want Percy. Like, I stand the most chance of getting him. Well, yeah. it but took that, you, like, it took you yeah. three to four minutes to mention that you were a school prefect and Percy would have done it immediately. <laughs> so. Yeah. Also on your website, you talk about how they call you in. Uh, you audition for the part. And part of that process was improving a scene with the fat lady, the fat lady's not letting you in. Yeah. What was that like? How, how, did, you, how did you find the character through the improv? And was improv a part of uh, the process at all as you went forward into, into making these films? <laughs> improv terrifies me, I'm not going to lie. I'm sounding more like Percy by the minute, but I like to know, <laughs> I like to know what's going on, all right? Um, I'm, I, yeah, I'm, I'm quite organized. <laughs> Believe it or not, I am quite organized. I like to have everything like planned. And they sent through a script, which was the script of Percy taking the first years to the and doing the whole mind the staircases and password, Capetraconis, all that stuff. And in my second audition, which is my second of two auditions, so I had one with just the casting director and then one with the casting director, Janet Hershenson and Chris Columbus and David Heyman and everyone, like all of the important people. And in that one, when we got to the cap at Draconis, but Chris Columbus was reading in the lines for everyone else. So we'd had Peeves the Poltergeist and then we'd had the fat lady. And he went, password? <laughs> in this really weird British accent. That was a password? <laughs> I went, Capit Draconis. And he went, no, I'm afraid the password's changed. And in my little brain at the time, because I had no idea what was going on. Like, I was 60, I'd never auditioned. Just but, sprung it on you. Like, I'd done youth theatre and high school shows and, like, all I had to do was sing a song and that was it. And that was okay. But this was different. This was like in a room with strangers and foreigners that I didn't know. And it was a whole new process. And he just went, no, it's changed. And my little brain went, this isn't, this isn't, what's, this isn't in the script. What happens now? What do you do now? And I honestly, I, I don't quite know how my brain got there. But I went, <laughs> I went, I went, password can't have changed. I'm sorry, the password's changed. Went, Dumbledore would have informed me if the password had changed. <laughs> <laughs> And like, I don't, honestly, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and you know, when, you, when you're watching this all happen from like somewhere behind you, you're like, where did you even think of that yeah. from? Like nothing went through my brain apart from these words that just came out of my face. Um, <laughs> and I thought, yes, Dumbledore would have informed me if that right was yes. Well, as that uh, anecdote indicates, Percy has a uncommon sense of self-importance and is certainly a stickler for the rules. Some, you know, this might sound uncharitable, would say maybe he's a little uptight. And part of what makes him fascinating to watch in the films is that he can convey a lot even when he's not speaking, through his body language, through how he appears in the background (laughs) and what that conveys. So how did you find kind of the physicality of Percy, which might seem like a strange question because I don't know if people think of Percy as a, you know, how Hermione would describe Crumb as a physical Physical being. being. (laughs) How did you find the body language of Percy? 
Uh, well, that's a, oh, that's a very interesting. Well, I mean, you you seem so relaxed here, and then Percy, yeah, Percy's not very, that guy. <laughs> he has a, he has a rod stuffed somewhere very firmly. <laughs> a broomstick, uh, I believe it would be a um, broomstick. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just that. I mean, and, and the way we see, because we don't have time or space in the films to explore all that Percy thing, he is very much there. He's kind of he's there for one note, and that note is to be the voice of authority that is directly between the kids and the teachers and is directly relatable because he's Ron's big brother. But when you have so little time and you kind of have to just do it, it, it does become a caricature. And it is very much just stand very straight, chest out, head up, kind of, and, and that kind of sneery kind of thing that he does. And the, eye, and the eyebrow as well, the, the trademark Percy eyebrow. Yeah, I mean, it's just, that's just him. <laughs> of, of all the scenes that you filmed, what, what was your favorite? Oh. You can pick more than one. You, yeah, can, you, give, pick, you can give a few favorites. I answered this on my... In the UK, I pronounce it fack off, F-A-Q off, <laughs> fack off. Um, eh, works. Um, but it, there's like a list. There's like yeah, 30 yeah. of them, and it is like... There's a bit... Every, everything's connected to a different memory. So like every time I ask that question, somebody asks that question, I usually answer it with a different answer because it's yeah. just a different memory that springs to mind. Um... Um, weirdly, I'm going to go with the courtroom scene in mm. Order of the... It is Order of the Phoenix, isn't it? Yeah, Order of the Phoenix. Sorry, I kind of blur a little bit. Um, which, in which I don't speak. Yeah. <laughs> in which you can barely see me in the edit. Um, but it was just so much fun. Like, it was the first... Because it was the first time, having not done Goblet of Fire, I'd gone from doing uh, Philosopher's Stone, because that's what it's called, not Sorcerer's Stone. Uh, Chamber of Secrets. <laughs> Just saying. Um, she's English. She wrote it in England. It's called Philosopher's Stone. Um, and Prisoner of Azkaban. And then having Goblet of Fire off. When I came back then, I, I'd left... I'd left. Percy had left school and gone to the ministry. So when I came back to the fifth one, I wasn't playing with the kids anymore. I was... I was the youngest of the grown-ups rather than the oldest of the kids. And it meant I got to hang out with the really cool people. <laughs> like, 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 no, like when you sat in hair and makeup and next to you is like Imelda Staunton and then Gambon and Robert Hardy and like you're with the ministry people and the, mm. and the grown-up actors and all these people that you kind of, you see on the telly and respect. And, yeah. and suddenly Imelda Staunton's like playing with your hair. Can, and, we, can so. we hear more about that? That was on our list of questions we wanted what? to ask you, specifically about the hair guidance. Yeah, that, that was weird. No, I was just sat in hair and makeup one day. Like, and this, this usually happens really early in the morning. Like, because you start normal filming day starts at about seven o'clock. You usually start filming at about nine ish, but it means you're picked up from the hotel anywhere between six and seven, um, which is awfully early, quite honestly. Um, and yeah, so you get into, you arrive, you have breakfast, and then you go and sit in a nice warm room where it's nice and sort of lit. And you sit in a very nice comfy chair and you just slowly toes off while nice, usually ladies, kind of play with your hair and stroke your face with brushes and make you look nice. Um, and I was kind of just sat there, just enjoying kind of being fussed at for a minute or two. And then suddenly realised that whatever was fussing at me was doing it a little bit more like... <laughs> like that than I'd kind of hoped for. <laughs> I kind of opened my eyes a bit because I kind of kind of go, oh, this is pretty... And I opened my eyes and there was a Melda Staunton just like... Yeah, just fixing my perm. Was there any sort of like 
I must not tell lies version for hair care. Like, no, I she, must not fall asleep yeah. with she product was, in. She was, honestly, she was delightful. Like, the nicest, but very short, um, but very nice. As, as a young actor working with some of these legendary figures, what was that like? Did they impart any wisdom to you, tell any stories that would... To be honest, I was yeah. mostly too scared to talk to most of them. Um, I, I don't, yeah, I'm not, I'm a bit of a, I'm not... Contrary to, contrary to what you're seeing here right now, I don't really like talking to people very much. Um, like... We'll probably get to that in a minute, but I'm like, I always say there's like there's two versions of Chris and then Percy. So like there's Chris that sits at home and watches telly and hangs out and doesn't like answering the phone or calling for an order of takeaway or anything. And then there's like public Chris, which is this Chris, which is a bit of a performance. Not that it's less genuine, but that Chris, yeah, is is say for special occasions. And and Chris who doesn't like to talk to famous people is. Um, is, yeah, slightly scared. So I used to, just to sort of lurk around the edge and just listen to them all talking. So were you attempting to sort of absorb lessons through osmosis yeah. and yeah. observation? And just listen, they're interesting people. And like, you know, when you get showbiz people together, they all talk about showbiz things. And right. Yeah. Does it. any particular like pearl of wisdom stand out to you I that you gleaned <laughs> while eavesdropping on them from the corner? Oh, no. There was this, um, um, oh, no, there's kids. Um, <laughs> When we do the after hours, one of this, um, I'll tell you more about them. But I remember, I remember sitting once, just like sort of perched on the side of the set, on the Ministry of Magic set, just when we were doing that bit where Voldemort comes back right at the end. And you know, there's a bit, I'm kind of doing what I was taught to do best, which is stand near the most famous person in the scene, and then you can't get cut from the film. Oh, <laughs> um, smart. Yeah. Very smart. It works, trust me. Like, all of Deathly Hallows, I'm like the best paid extra on that set. But I'm just there, there's, there's Daniel, and I'm like, hi. Um, don't know why, it works though, it really works. Um, but I was doing exactly the same thing to Robert Hardy when the Minister of Magic yeah. comes stomping up and there's the, but just been the fight with Voldemort and Harry in the Ministry, and Robert Hardy goes, he's back! And there's Percy just sat there going. Um, <laughs> But I'd been sort of perched on the side with, with Robert, just between takes, waiting for something to happen. I don't know, sweeping up all the smashed glass or something. And, or the side was sand, wasn't it, that yeah. it sort of appears. And we just sat chatting, and he, was just, he just started talking about... He'd been to Oxford University. Uh, this was prior to then being in the RAF, I want to say, during the Second World War. And like, he was just an incredible man, but he was taught at Oxford by Tolkien... And um, I'm going to get this the wrong way around. Narnia, C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Um, they, have they they have those guys written anything that we've heard of? Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, there's this one about Jesus being a lion in a cupboard. Uh, Something uh, about trees that walk? Yeah. Um, yeah, and then there's that other one with wizards. Um, uh, uh, but yeah, no, and they, they were his lecturers at university, wow. and like they used to just hang out in the pub together and like slag each other off and like, you know there'd be Tolkien going oh he just writes kids books and like that's amazing yeah. pay attention but, to your teachers yes you that's never know that's the lesson yeah you never know <laughs> you never know you never know when they might write the next Twilight <laughs> what <laughs> so okay you just mentioned the strategy of positioning yourself strategically next to somebody you yes. know is going to make it into that shot yes let's talk about the dark underbelly of that. The material that doesn't make it in, oh, either because it got cut or because yeah. it was never filmed in the yeah. first place. Yeah. So knowing all of the 
Percy plot that's in the books. Mm-hmm. Is there one, either like an entire storyline, an arc, or even just one scene or one moment that you most lament not being able to bring to the screen? <sighs> yes and no. Um, I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll kind of hit this backwards, I think. I'm going to hit this one backwards. Um, I'm okay with the Percy Redemption thing not really being as big a deal as it is in the books because it would be weird. Where it is in the film and where it is in the kind of... Like, if you look at a film, like, you're looking at kind of a graph and it kind of has to peak at a certain point and that certain point's usually probably about two-thirds of the way through. Where all that stuff happens with Percy is way too much in the middle of everything. And like, if you were to just stop and go, oh, here's that guy from the first two films. Um, remember him? Yeah, he's back. That wouldn't work. That would yeah. like just kill the whole mood. Like, just, like complete buzzkill. So I totally get that. That's like, that's fine. And I totally get the Fred Death thing not being there because for the same reason, it kind of it's more poignant that you stop and go, oh god, he's dead. Yeah. Than see him die, and I think that works much better in a film kind of a way. I think it's much sadder to see the dead body than it is yeah. to see the death. Uh, but I think not for any other reason other than that it doesn't add or take anything away from it. It would have been really nice to have Percy and Goblet Fire. Yes. Um, yeah. It is what it is. I mean, it, it, it makes no difference that he's there and it makes no difference that he isn't, really. So, yeah. Yeah. It makes but a then, difference. But then not being in the Goblet of Fire films mean I mean means I got away with not having one of those terrible mullets that you appear to oh, have man. in order to be- The hair in Goblet of Fire is a film is atrocious. It's a journey, Honestly. the journey of the soul. Yeah. yeah. Ron, so yeah. I mean, Ron can you imagine like the- what Percy's Goblet of Fire hair would look like? He'd have like a Ron Burgundy mustache going on or something. Like, oh dear lord. Oh man. Yeah. Now I'm really sorry we yeah. didn't get that. So you wrote your letter at 16, and you've talked a little bit about the public Chris, the, the private Chris. Um, what is it like to essentially grow up on camera and have this uh, image of you in people's minds as the person you are and having to reconcile those things? Like how, how, what, uh, what advice would you give to a young person maybe who's like, I, I, I want to do this. This is something I want to do. Well, um, acting. Acting, yeah. And then having to, having to you know... Uh, reconcile those those things it's weird i didn't think it i wasn't i wasn't that i wasn't thinking it through i just no, when, when this all happened when i was 16 like as far as i was concerned all i was doing was writing in a letter to a free sure. post address and then this thing happened and i don't think when we started doing it i think i could probably vouch for anybody who was certainly of the younger cast who hadn't had experience in TV and film or professional acting before, I, I don't think any of us had the first idea what we'd signed up to. Of course. Right? Not, the, not a clue. Because we didn't know. You know, you, you, you see a film, and even if you see a film, you don't really understand that that's a lot, you know, that's millions and millions and millions of dollars of money going in. That's hours and hours and hours of work. We just didn't understand it. And I think, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I can say that if I'd known that being in the films would mean that 20 years later I'd still be here talking to God, hundreds of you in a room. I don't know that it would put me off necessarily, right. but I don't know that... I had no, no expectation, I think is what I'm trying to say. Zero expectation and zero understanding of what it was that I was letting myself in for. Um, that makes it sound negative, but it was, that's not negative at all. It's, it's, just, it's, it's been a ride. Like Even now, I mean, it's on the 20-something, 21st, 22nd, something like that, it'll be 18 years ago this month that I had my first audition. 
and ev- literally every single day is like a totally new what's today going to bring? Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's been, you know, some days it's been great, some days it's not been so great. Um, but it, it's it's all good. But um, I'm rambling. Um, no, this is wonderful. <laughs> advice for actors. Um, like, I, I think the, the thing I always say to kids, and I do get kids come up sometimes, not so often anymore, I think because there's so much sort of exposure to it and it's, it's less of a kind of, and because of the social media thing, you can get famous yeah. through social media these days you don't have to be discovered anymore. You can mm-hmm. kind of, you can make people discover you. Yeah. Um, but people do say, you know, I want to be an actor. I want to, and I say, I always say, do you want to be an actor or do you want to be famous? Mm. Because there's a bloody big difference. Um, if you want to be famous, don't become an actor. Like, do something else. Uh, if you want to be an actor, be prepared to spend the rest of your life, A, never working, B, never earning enough money to do anything. Um, because, no, that's what it is. You know, I, I, my figures on this are way out of date, but, Somebody told me, and this is a long time ago, for every actor in the world that's working at any one time as an actor, there was something, and this, I mean, this figure's probably 15, 16 years old at least. There was something like 180,000, I think, actors in the world who are not working as actors. So one in 180,000 actors at any one time in the world is working. That's, that's nothing. That's ridiculous. That's, that's not a career. That's a passion. So if you want to go into performing into the performing arts, you have to do it because it, you can't ever imagine doing anything right. but getting up on stage right. in front of a group of people and pretending to be somebody else for a living. Um, and if that's what you want to do, nothing will ever stop you, but you shouldn't ever do it because you want to be famous. Like, if you want to be famous, I don't know. Get a Twitter account. Get a Twitter Become account. Become an Instagram or, influencer. Yeah. yeah. Is that, everything you just described, that's really fascinating to hear. Is that something that you were sort of Hyper conscious of as you were living through it, and that you find your found yourself reflecting on actively at the time, and was sort of an evolution of like your own assessment of your career and your life. Or is this something that you've really found clarity on now, as you look back in hindsight on those years and how they shaped your career and your life? Yeah, I, I think Harry, <laughs> like the whole Harry Potter eleven year thing was just this eternal blur. Like the whole thing, like. I was owned by Warner Brothers basically for <laughs> yeah. 11 years. Like if they rang and they said, we need you now, you'd get in your car and you'd, you'd be there. Mm. Um, it was a blur. Like the whole thing is this whole like sort of long blur. And I think it's only at the end of it, you kind of look back and go, whoa, that happened. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, and like I said, like I never, I had no, I wanted to, I wanted to act when I was 16, but then I was good at acting at school and I, you know, I was in the school shows and I got good parts in the school shows and I thought, oh, acting, that's fun. I'll do that. I had no ex- expectation that that was actually what was going to happen or that it was going to happen like in a second. Right. And literally it happened in a second. What was the moment, if there was one, when you realized, oh, this is, this is real. I'm in a movie. It's a huge it, <laughs> franchise. This is a real thing. There, there was, was millions of people yeah. that, that know about this story. Um, the, first, the first kind of time I was like, oh, 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 oh okay, uh, was what, the first premiere. And everyone will say that, I think. That was the first time, because we, we all got out of a car in Leicester Square in London, and like this wall, like, like it felt like a wall of sound hit you in the face, because there was just, the whole of London was gridlocked. Like, in order to get to the premiere, we'd had, because I lived out in Norfolk, which is like three hours drive east of, east of London, northeast of London, and they'd sent a car up to pick me up and my mum up. And we went down to London. And by the time we got to London, London was gridlocked because everybody was trying to get into Leicester Square to see the Harry Potter red carpet. 
So my drive was going like the wrong way up one-way streets, driving down pavements through pedestrians. Like it was, it was like the Italian job to get there. It was so, it, honestly, it was the weirdest thing and quite stressful <laughs> um, for a 16-year-old whose mum drives like I don't know, like a 90-year-old. Uh, like um, there's this driver who's like, um, and then we got out of the car and there was just like this noise everywhere, and they all knew who we were. Yeah. But this was before Twitter and Facebook and yeah, any right. of that. So, like, yeah, it, that was a bit like, oh, my, God, this is huge. And then, of course, it was in every cinema and every place in the world. And suddenly your face is, like, the size of an <laughs> IMAX screen, which is <laughs> disconcerting, to say the least. Um, yeah. But then that becomes weirdly normal as well. Mm, like, sure, you acclimate. You know, yeah. like, you turn, like, now, even now, you turn the TV on and it's on somewhere at Christmas or Easter or whatever on you've got a whole channel of it over here on abc or something <laughs> like this constant endless loop um but you do now you turn the tv on it especially at christmas or something and it's just oh god there it is yeah like it's weird it's really weird it's amazing very yeah. grateful it's so like, it's like somebody's got your home videos from when you were a kid <laughs> yeah. and just like you think oh god i sound like that were oh. you also sneaking down to the dungeons with penelope clearwater in your home videos <laughs> Not those home videos. Get a reserve comment for now. <laughs> That's again, that will be discussed at length in our After Dark session. Um, so be, because you mentioned the, the fandom and the community and what it was like to suddenly find yourself in the middle of that world, we're interested to, to hear a little bit about your dissertation, which you wrote on the Harry Potter fan community. Yes. And we're curious to hear like if you can kind of use your own uh, internal time turner and go back to that moment, what it was like to explore the fan community through the academic lens when you also were so close to it directly. It was really interesting, actually. The, um, the reason I... T being me, this, this story goes along a similar vein of why I auditioned for Percy, um, and it was because I knew that was the one I was most likely to get a good result from. Um, I had to write... I was at university. When, when I hadn't got... When Percy wasn't in the sixth film, I'd kind of figured that having kind of not really been in the fifth film, just kind of lurking, um, I was like, okay, Percy's not in the sixth one. That's probably Percy done. I'm good with that. That's fine. I've had my time. I earned some nice money out of it. Traveled the world. This is all good. Time to put it to bed. End of chapter. I'll go to university and like study something so I can get a real job now. Um, <laughs> And then I went to university, and lo and behold, straight into university, <laughs> Warner Brothers ring. Right, you're in, you're in Deathly Hallows. <laughs> God almighty. Um, not that I'm complaining, of course. Um, but then it came around to dissertation. I'm not much of a one for doing... That's where me and Percy really part company. I will leave mm. everything until the last moment. Um, but we have to write a dissertation, 10,000 words, plus give or, my, give or take 10%. Um, on basically a subject of your choice to do with the media. My degree was in media production, so it had to be something academically related to media. And I thought, right, well, I'll just write about Harry Potter because <laughs> I know quite a lot. And I've got, and, you know, having done a few of these events, I've met quite a lot of Harry Potter academics. So I've got an easy tap straight into people who can give me good quotes and good stuff. And the dissertation title was What Will Happen to the Fan Community of Harry Potter When the Saga Ends, which was coming up to the last film being released. This was, I had to hand it in. I handed it in summer 2011, so it was like six, seven weeks just before the film came out, um, the final film. And then, of course, Joe 
did Fantastic Beasts, and it's completely irrelevant now because she's just <laughs> carrying on. The saga never ended. Um, but I really enjoyed doing it. Actually, it was really it was really interesting. But it was interesting because we got to look at things like where fandoms started and where fan communities started and going back to like conventions and Star Trek being the first kind of fanzine yeah. kind of thing and how all that worked before the internet and then looking at things like Lord of the Rings which has an enormous fan community who aren't really doing an awful lot most of the time unlike you guys who are all here you know like you don't get Lord of the Rings con in the same way that you get Potter do you know what I mean? I think Amazon is hoping to change that yeah. <laughs> did you um now, when your professor was like, oh, I need a reference for this, did you drop in a footnote that was like, me, Chris Rankin? Here's my IMDb. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah, I mean, I blagged my way through. I wrote that thing in like three days and just, I mean, Melissa and Ellie, God love her, wherever she is, <laughs> saved my bacon. Heidi Tandy did as well. Like, yeah, through doing all these things. And so yeah. if you were going back to it today, you'd tear it up and start again because all the assessments have changed completely? I, yeah. Yeah, and like we're still here. It's amazing. <laughs> Thank yeah. God we're still here, but we're still here. Um, yes! And now a brief break for a word from our sponsor. Audiobooks are a great sidekick for summer activities like hiking, running, road tripping, enjoying downtime outdoors, and more. And the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet... Audible lets you fill your summer with more stories like... Harry Potter! How about the Harry Potter books, guys? Heard of those? We do a podcast on Harry Potter. Not sure if you know. Think the books are great. Highly recommend checking them out on Audible. Maybe check out A Song of Ice and Fire after that and then catch up on Binge Mode Game of Thrones. Wow! As an Audible member, you'll get a credit every month. Good for any audiobook, regardless of price. Unused credits roll over to the next mm, month. Love a rollover. And if you didn't like your audiobook, you can exchange it, no questions asked. Plus, your books are yours to keep. Mm. Go back and re-listen anytime, even if you cancel your membership. Better yet, you can switch seamlessly between devices, picking up exactly where you left off, whether it's on your phone, through your car, from a tablet, or at home. On an Amazon Echo. That's great. Love that convenience. Yes. Love life in the cloud. Start a 30-day trial. Your first audiobook is free. Just go to audible.com slash binge or text binge to 500-500. That's audible. A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash B-I-N-G-E. Or text binge to 500-500. You can do it with audiobooks. And now, back to binge mode. Uh, you've been blogging on your personal website, uh, and it's quite a fine writer. Thank you. It's wonderful. Two people who, who uh, work with words quite a bit. Um, and you've been extremely open and with your writing. What's that process been like? How has, how has that helped you unlock certain things as you've... It kind of happens by... Oh, sorry. Kind of happens by... Not by accident. I don't know. I mean, I, I wanted to write stuff. I was, there's things going on. Yeah, I kind of figured that just writing things down... Almost for my own... I, I knew I was going to start writing a blog. And I'd started writing a blog before and then kind of forgot about it, which happens, I guess, with blogs. 
Um, you do, you go, I'm going to do a blog and it's going to be great and I'm going to do one a week or one a month and, and then life happens and you kind of, you go, oh, I'll do it next week and then it's gone and it never happens. And that happened a few years ago and then I thought, right, this year I thought, right, I'm going to settle down and get sorted and sort my website out and I'm going to get a blog going because I like writing and I do and I have a lot of opinions which, what? Why you, <laughs> what was that? Over? I, I think that was laughter from the um, people who follow you on Twitter and see how often yes. you tweet at Amazon yes. and HelloFresh about your missing yeah. orders. I, I, can get, I can get quite angry about my HelloFresh orders. Um, and it's DPD, man. Like, those couriers, they deliver on a Monday, but on a Sunday they don't know where I live. It's ridiculous. Anyway, sorry. Um, but, like, I do get quite passionate about stuff, and I get quite passionate about stuff on Twitter, which is great, but it's quite short. Um, yes. And I don't like doing threads because I lose the will to live on a thread. And to be honest, I'm never entirely sure how it works. So <laughs> I thought I'll just I'll, I'll write some blogs occasionally about stuff that essentially is too long for me to tweet about. Um, and yeah, like the first one I what was what was the first one I wrote? You guys are probably near it. Was it was it the drag one? It was the drag one. I think it was like the first yes. big yes. one. Yes. And it kind of turned out I was gonna. It was basically going to be a, a, a blog going. I really like drag shows. I like RuPaul's Drag Race. Yeah. And I'm straight. Woo! Like, this is allowed. It's okay. Um, and then it turned into like this, it almost turned into some kind of coming out blog, which wasn't me coming out as anything other than me and not coming out at all. But it was, yeah. And, and I kind of got to the end of it and went, okay, I learned stuff about myself I didn't realize. I'd, you know, mm. and I just started typing and like words came out of my hands through my brain and stuff and and I read it back and went oh okay right cool okay awesome um yeah well we want I mean I don't know what that yeah we wanted to ask you about that post yeah. in particular actually because we were both really moved and inspired by the openness and honesty and candor and you should all check it out if you haven't yet and one of the things we were curious about is obviously like the drag that is your particular community that you are drawn to. And the, the specifics might vary from person to person. Yeah. But everybody has something. Yeah. And what advice do you have for people or what is the power, whether it's through a, a tool like a, a blog or any mode of expression, whether it's digital or otherwise, of finding a way to express something about yourself that you previously hadn't expressed out loud or maybe haven't mm. either even considered inwardly before and the ability to unlock something about your identity in a new way. I mean, that's it's incredibly empowering, um, which is why if anyone follows my blog, there hasn't been very much written on it recently um, because I, it, for me, the writing thing is like when I get really passionate about something and I just, I just need to let it out and as you can probably tell, words don't fall totally naturally from my face like <laughs> sentences are a little bit jumbled and the thoughts are mixed and it all kind of yeah I digress quite a lot um but writing I seem to like when I write I write things down basically the way I'm speaking them now and then kind of shuffle them back into an order that makes sense to the rest of the world and like that one in particular for me I just we uh, me and Nessie. I don't is Nessie even here? She's here somewhere. She was going to see it. My girlfriend. Where, sorry, I thought I saw her hand and then realised it had a beard, so it definitely wasn't my girlfriend. Um, <laughs> She's at the Hamilton. Sorting yeah, she panel. went. She went to see. She went to see the panel about sorting Hamilton characters into Hogwarts houses, uh, rather than coming to see me, which is fine because she sees me all the time. Um, but um, what was I saying? 
Um, we'd been to see we'd been to see Sasha Velour. Uh, who watches Drag Race here? Just show of hands. Okay. Yeah, fifteen percent, ten percent. We've been to see Sasha Velour, who is an amazing, amazing drag artist, um, and well worth watching. Just whether you're into that kind of stuff or not, just what she can do as a performer is just the most incredibly moving thing you'll ever see in your life. But we went to see her in Cardiff, where we live in Wales, um, in a tiny bar. I mean, I say a tiny bar. Like the production coordinator head in me was like, "Oh my God, the fire exits, the health and safety regulations. This place is like, how do we get out?" And like, I was stood on a table because we couldn't see otherwise. It was that kind of place. Um, and it was her first performance in the UK, having won season nine of Drag Race. Um, and she was just so, like, I've seen drag queens before, and it's always fabulous, and it's always camp and, like, over the top and lip-syncing along to songs. And that's, you know, it still was. She was lip-syncing to Shirley Bassey songs, but there was something, she did really clever things, and it's really artistic, and it was really emotional. I never thought I'd find myself in a gay bar in Cardiff on a Monday evening at 11.30, weeping copiously as... <laughs> As, as a bald drag queen lip syncs to Kate Bush's Wuthering Heights whilst dressed as Gollum in a red sequin dress. Um, but honestly, that, yeah, it was that kind of thing. And it just made me go, this is what I love about performance. This is what... Yeah. And I, I was like, I, I need to deal with this. Like, this is, this is really upset, not upset me, but maybe emotional in a way that I wasn't expecting and I need to work out why. And working out why just meant me sitting down with my notes tab open on my iMac and going, so I've just been to see Sasha Valor and all this and la, 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 and then it turned into a counsellor, like a very cheap therapy session. Um, but for me, that's writing things down. And then if I write it down, I can start to kind of order it out in my brain and make sense of things a bit more. Some people do that through vlogs. You know, some yeah. people do it through podcasts. Some people do it through singing or acting or dancing. Dancing's really quite a good way to get emotion out as well. Um, some people don't, which is also cool. Not necessarily healthy all the time, but sometimes, you know, sometimes it's fine to keep your emotions and thoughts and everything and feelings to yourself. Um, but equally, I think it's important that everybody has a way to get that stuff out, whether it is having your own diary or, you know, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be talking to a person. It doesn't have to be just, just talking to yourself in the shower. I do that a lot as well. Um, <laughs> and I do, I wander around the house going, right, okay, so this is... And like sorting life out, out loud in my head. And it's kind of, that's, essentially I run my own blog like that. But I think, yeah, I don't know what I'm saying, to be honest. This is jet lag talking, but it's... Um, everyone should have an emotional outlet. Right. Mine just happens to be writing and occasionally I write stuff that makes enough sense that I think it should make... It could make sense to some other people, That's, which is why I put it out there. Wonderful and very moving. One of the other posts that um, really struck us was you wrote about your experiences as a child of adoption. Yeah. Um, Harry Potter and so many fantasy stories, actually, in general, um, focus on a character who uh, grows up without their birth parents. And I yeah. was wondering, we were wondering, if your personal experiences shaped the way you engage with those stories at all, shaped the way that, that you processed uh, Harry Potter? I don't think so. Purely because for me, my like I've always been totally cool with being adopted, mm -hmm. which I give enormous credit to my adoptive parents for, because at not at any single point was there a sit down, we need to have a conversation thing, which a, a few of my friends had, and t some of it went fine, some of it they've never spoken to the people since. Um, because I don't remember, I, don't, I was, I think, eight weeks old when I was adopted, mm -hmm. like essentially adopted at birth, and I... 
I don't know any different. I have no idea who the person who gave birth to me is. They're out there somewhere. Um, my mum and dad, my dad died when I was 19, um, but my adoptive mum and dad, and my mum and dad, they always have been, but I've all, equally at the same time, I've always known that they weren't the people who gave birth to me. So that's my normal. Like, mm. yeah, that's my normal. I don't, you know, everyone's like, oh, what's it like being adopted? I'm like, I don't know, what's it like not being adopted? <laughs> <laughs> This is what, is it, yeah, it's an, it's an odd one because it's like I know for some people it's quite an emotive thing and quite a personal and emotional thing, but it, yeah, it's just, it's just who I am. I think that's just you know one more example of how taken we have been by your openness and sharing stories about your life. Mm. And one of the other things that you've uh, you've said when describing yourself is that you are an introverted extrovert. Essentially, yeah. That you are or not... Or an extroverted introvert, I think. <laughs> yeah. Probably works Whichever we get one. Yeah. Yeah. Not loud, not outspoken, but also that you, you enjoy the attention that comes from performing and the, yeah. the thrill of it yeah. and what that gives you. So how, whether it was during the time that you were in the films or the time now that you're working on your website or any of the other work that you're pursuing professionally or in life, mm. personally... How have you sort of explored that dissonance? And, and what would you say to other people who maybe feel that kind of internal tension between what they, what they crave, but also what they feel comfortable with? For me, what it turned out to be was I was, I, I was like the shyest child you have ever met. Like anywhere I, we would go, I would hide behind my mum, like properly. Like if anyone talked to me, like that. Um, whenever we went to people, friends' houses, like people I was really good friends, like my best friends, we'd go to their house, my mum would drop me off and I'd cry for three hours because my mum had gone. And like, and then mum would come to pick me up because they'd ring her and go, he's crying, can you come and get him? He won't do anything and cry in the kitchen. He's just, oh. She'd come and get me and then I'd cry because I didn't want to leave. You know, it's like, it's that eternal vicious cycle of child. But I was always like that and to some extent I still, like I said, I still am. I hate like, ringing for a takeaway or if Postmates. I, won't, I won't go and ask for some like if you're in a shop and you can't find it I'd rather just not get it than mm -hmm. go and ask somebody for it um, but at the same time I like getting up on stage and saying stupid stuff to you guys you know um, and I enjoy the buzz of you guys laughing at me or clapping at me or whatever it is that you know there's something, and that for me first happened when I went to high school, and my mum basically bullied me to be into being in the school show. She was like, "It'd be good for you, go and do it." Like that. Um, and I, it was Bugsy Malone was the school show, and I played a dead body um, <laughs> very well. I hasten to add, um, and also uh, the, there's a the ventriloquist act in Bugsy Malone, and also a Chinese reporter, which was the most, like, you would not get away with that. It was fine in 1995, not so fine these days at all. Um, oh, my God, I'm glad there's no video evidence of me <laughs> trying to do a... Oh, no. Um, it's probably cute when I was 11. Um, but what I discovered doing that was that when I was up on stage, essentially being somebody else, playing a character... Like I'm not, I'm not going to go down the. I was bullied at school route, I, but I was ginger. I was teased at school. My mum was a teacher at the school I went to. I, you know, you can, you know, you know where that goes. Like I was the ginger kid. Um, it happens. It wasn't terrible. It was just irritating and a bit upsetting sometimes. But I discovered that when I got on stage, I wasn't. 
Chris anymore, I was somebody else. And whoever that somebody else was, if people were laughing at them, they weren't laughing at me, they were laughing at, what I was, at who I was being. And that was like this epiphany of like, oh my God, acting and being somebody else and getting stuff out by being somebody else is really awesome. Um, and it's great fun. And actually, I'm all right at it. <laughs> um, and I really enjoyed it. And that was kind of like this breakthrough moment. And after that, it kind of, it became a lot easier. And like I was saying earlier, like the two Chris's thing, like there's Chris that will be at home on the sofa watching telly and just being Chris and being Norman and not answering the phone, whatever. But this Chris is like, it's like a, it's like a hyper version of yeah. that. It's like a hyper reality version of the same person, but it's, it's like almost like a persona. It's a public persona, I guess, is what it is. But it doesn't make it any less real. It just, it's just a, it's just Do the two Chris's ever argue? Very occasionally, yeah. Yeah. Who very, wins? Very occasionally there's that, there's that moment where, oh, this Chris always wins because once I'm out here, it's fine. But there's, there's, always, there's, there's sometimes a little bit, just not necessarily this stage, but just off that stage where that anxiety point is like, oh my God, there's yeah. loads of people. Oh, you, know, you know that feeling. Like, and you're like, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this today. Not today. Can't do this. And then there's that moment where it's too late and you just have to do it. Yeah. And then it's fine. Like, you know, when somebody goes, ladies and gentlemen, Chris Rankin, you can't not turn up. You have to go out there. Um, <laughs> you know, just, no. <laughs> uh, I'm good. Um, it's the other Chris. Yeah. So you come out and, and do it and, and it's actually fine. It's, it's fine. Right. Uh, one more question, then we'll open it up for questions from the audience. From you, uh, you sign off all your posts with uh, big love muggle fuggers. Muggle fuggers. <laughs> Did you coin that yourself, and, and what was so. the inspiration? <laughs> <laughs> I think I did, um, mostly because I like trying to be trying to be incredibly rude without being rude at all. Yeah. Hence the FAQ off thing as well. Like, just yeah, I'm, I I want to say I want to say bad words. I do say a lot of bad words in my real life, um, but That's obviously, well. you know, I work in an industry where there are children, and I'm very respectful of that, and they don't yeah. need to hear that from me. <laughs> Like, they didn't need to hear that from Percy as well. They can hear it. Like, like I said, we can do an after hours one of these if you want. That's totally cool. Um, and discuss what Percy was doing in that dungeon with Penelope Clearwater. Uh, check out, check out the, the binge mode social media feeds to find out that answer uh, later. They'll, be, they'll find a hashtag for that and I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll sort that out. Um, All right. Anyone have a question? We have, we have a, a mic. We have a mic. Form an orderly queue in front that's of that right. microphone. Percy would want you to maintain yeah. decorum. Yeah. That's right. Quickly. <laughs> yeah. The staircases move, the microphone does not, but... <laughs> Go ahead. Hi, Hi. Um, I'm Leah. Um, my question for you was, what is your Potter story? Like, how did you discover Harry Potter? Oh, that's a, that's a really good question, actually. And not what I get asked very often. Um, I mentioned my mum was a teacher at the school I went to. She was an English teacher at the school I went to. And it would have been the summer that Chamber of Secrets came out in the UK, which I believe was 1998 eight and somebody can mm -hmm. correct me if I'm wrong the school librarian had basically handed my mum the first two books and gone apparently these are really good everyone's talking about them in like the <laughs> library circle you know there's some secret library magazine that librarians read like this is really popular take these home give them to Chris make them read them over the summer and see if we need to order loads of them for the library this is this happened a lot like I was the guinea pig at school <laughs> so my mum would give me stuff and then report back um uh, so I read yeah, I read, I read those first two books on a campsite on the Isle of Wight and then immediately reread them again. Um, and that was it. Done. Like, from just my mum going, read these, tell me what you think, to, oh my God, like, <laughs> this is great, in like a minute. 
Thank you. I think like we all were in, at some point, you know, somebody going, read this. And we go, oh, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> Thank you. Hello, my name is Perry. Hello. Uh, I'm a proud Gryffindor. I just want to let everyone know that. I'm, I'm a Ravenclaw, FYI. Just <laughs> yeah. I should have mentioned that earlier. Three Ravenclaws up yeah. But on the other hand, if you had a drag persona, what would your name be and what would your persona Ooh. be? Good question. Uh, I don't know why, but I think somewhere... So the, um, oh, I've got eight minutes. I'll do the really quick version of this. For some reason, I, and I don't know where this came from, somewhere in my head, my drag name has always been Miss Demeanor. Oh! Um, which, which, is, which is fine. Um, she's quite camp, quite flirty. Um, you might get to meet her one day, who knows. Uh, uh, not that I'm spending any of my life copying Darren Chris at all, but I have, like, in the back of my head, I've been wanting to do a production of Hedwig and the Angry Inch since before, before I'm 40. So I've got five years to do that, at which point you might get to meet this drag thing. I'll have to show you this first as well. Um, and yeah, so she, yeah, she's, she's a flirt, I'm afraid. <laughs> awesome, thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Caitlin, nice hey, to meet you. Nice to meet you. I'm a Hufflepuff, and anyways, I was just, yay. I was just wondering, you mentioned that you were a little like Percy. What's the biggest thing, like, in what way are you most like Percy? We're both ginger. <laughs> uh, no, um... I am a bit of a, I do, I, I'm not, I, I have to stick to the rules. I'm not very good at, like, if, if, if there's a sign that says, don't do it, I can't do it. <laughs> and I get really, I'll tell you what really annoys me the most, and it, like, and this is the most Percy thing about me, is when you go to, like, a Broadway show or a musical or something, actually, to some extent as well, like, the cinema or even, like, a pop concert, and the person in front of you does this. Honestly, it has made me violent before now. Um, they tell you to put your phones away. Like, this is a totally different scenario, guys. I'm not, I'm not having a go at you. This is, this is, this is an open forum uh, completely. But like, when, you go, when you pay $200 to go and see Hamilton, I don't want to see your bloody text messages on your phone in front of me. Like, why are you wasting your money? Gee, honestly. And I went to see, I went to see and one of my other obsessions in life is the Blue Man Group, and I'm sure I will get to writing about that. <laughs> it was that. There we go, thank you. Um, that, that'll be another blog post about community and stuff, in a, but that'll come up. Um, uh, but I went to see them in Vegas, I think, last year, and somebody literally held their phone up and started recording the show, even though they, ha they tell you, and there are signs everywhere, don't record the show, it's really boring, it's really distracting, and you're not enjoying it. And I literally, I pushed the guy so hard, because he was stood in front of me, I went, stop it like that, his phone fell out of his hand. <laughs> 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 it doesn't work <laughs> But it's just, oh, it's just, like, I can see it, and it, it's the same up here, and it's the same in the audience. Wherever you, wherever you are in the audience, I can, and, like, if you're sat in front of me anywhere, I see that little light and I can see it over there and that's it, that's all I'm going to see forever. So that's my thing. But yeah, I am a stickler for rules. Rules are there for a reason and they're there not to be broken. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, Hi, my name is Meg, I'm a Slytherin. Hey. Um, Great costume, well done. Um, so my quick question was, 
in regards to the process of making a film and preparing for a play, which do you think pays off more? The gratification you get at the end of the development of the film or the immediate gratification of performing on you stage? You already know the answer to this. It, it, it's the standing on stage and going, thank you very much, and everyone clapping. That's like the most, that's, yeah, you can't beat that. I mean, the, for the, I've worked in the other side of TV and film for like six years now. I've been sort of behind the scenes in production offices and doing my production coordinating stuff and travel and all sorts. Um, and I love that dearly. But from that aspect, the producing side of film and the sort of the prep and how, how you get to the point at which you get your actors there, I find way more interesting than the actual acting of it. Like, the process of making a film is fascinating to me, and the same with TV as well. The performing on it, not so much, because it's all out of whack, and it's also kind of... Whereas when you're on stage, it's so immediate, and it's so... It's so immediate, it's so unique, because you will never see the same thing twice, ever. Ever, ever, ever. Like, even if, you see, even if the play feels like you've done it exactly the same way, there's 300 new people out there who haven't seen it before, which makes it totally unique to them and to everybody else. And it, it's never the same twice. And you go from the start all the way through to the finish in one go. And that's how, that's how a story's supposed to be done. Um, so yeah, that's way more interesting. And people usually, if it's gone well, clap at the end of the night, which is, which, <laughs> which don't, no, not now, stop. We haven't got time, we've got four minutes, end. come on. <laughs> hey. Hi, I'm Sophia. I'm in Slytherin because that's the best house. Wow. 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 It's a house. It's a house. Um, <laughs> first off, I'd like to say that an, uh, someone who's an extrovert and an, and an introvert is an ambivert. And then my question is, what do you feel about what is like your position on the diversity in Hogwarts? That's a good question. Um, it's a what? So it's an am, ambi, ambivert. Ambivert. Ambivert, that's a good word. I'm going to keep that one. Um, and diversity at Hogwarts, oof. I mean, it's a tricky one. It, it's a, it, I mean, it is what it is. And we can look at it and go, yes, there should be more diversity across ethnicity, religion, gender. I mean, we kind of, we go through these cycles, I think, with, with what we should be more diverse about, I think. And at the moment, we're certainly in the UK. There's a lot of there's a lot of concentrating on gender diversity and gender fluidity, and that's great. We've had a lot of talk about religious diversity, and that's also great, and sexual diversity, and all sorts of diversities, and that is all amazing. The thing with stories is they have to reflect reality. I mean, they have to reflect reality, and sure, more could be done not just in Potter, but in literature, especially young adult literature, from a certain time period, I think, it's getting better these days, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, to reflect diversity as a whole. Um, I think when we're talking about when the books were written, uh, I think the easiest way to say, and I don't know because I'm not, I'm not Joe, you know, and I hate to say it was different times, but it wasn't, it wasn't, so, much of, it wasn't so much a consideration of what we what we were aware of, I think, at the time. And I think people in the 90s, I mean, you've got to remember Joe was writing these books kind of realistically in the early 90s into the mid-90s, before they came out in the late-ish 90s. The UK, oh God, you've gone really quiet. This is, <laughs> this is terrifying. Um, I'm trying not to talk myself into a massive hole here at the same time, but like, what I'm trying to say is that there should be more diversity, absolutely. Uh, the timescale in which these were written, I think we lived, in, we lived in more innocent times in the 90s. We weren't 
we didn't think about things like that. Not saying we shouldn't, we, well, we should have done, we absolutely should have done, but we, we just didn't. And I think we wrote about, people write about what they know and what they see. And if people live in a white middle class area, then what they're going to write about is white middle class wizards. Um, <laughs> obviously. Um, there's, it, 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 it's attempted at, but absolutely. I think if, if, if we went back to it now, I think it'd be a whole other kettle of fish. And there'd be, yeah, there'd be trans wizards and black wizards, Asian wizards, everyone. Everyone under the sun would be in Hogwarts, and that would be totally cool. But then, yeah, in the 90s, everything was very white, <laughs> I'm afraid, and very white and very straight. And, and that's <laughs> how the you. 90s were, sadly. Um, but we need to go back to it, I think, yeah. definitely. Ah, oh, the time running out thing's come up. Quick, talk. Can squeeze in a couple, a couple more. Yeah. I'm Sarah Ravenclaw. Hey. Yeah. Um, you briefly touched on this earlier about how before and after the Goblet of Fire, you completely changed who you were sharing scenes with. Originally, yeah. it was the school kids, and then it became the ministry. Yeah. Um, based off of that, who are some of your favorite scene partners? And were there any characters that you didn't have a chance to interact with on screen that you wished you had? Oh, um, I would love to. I would have loved to have had more to do with uh, Ken Branagh's Lockhart. Um, mm. one of, actually, another one of my favourite scenes to film, one of my favourite memories was shooting, I've completely forgotten about it for a minute there, uh, Borgin and Burks, not Borgin and Burks, oh, good God, what's it called? Flourish and Blots. Um, in Chamber Secrets, yeah, two, two, two totally different shots. Um, and the bit with Malfoy, Lucius Malfoy, when we see him for the first time and that whole thing, that was great to film uh, because we had Ken Branagh there as Lockhart, Jason Isaacs, who was chewing the furniture in that wig, as like with that ridiculous sort of Kensington accent, and it was just amazing. And watching all those people, they were some of my favourite people. I think they're sort of the ones that were slightly unexpected, I guess. Like Jason Isaacs, I was I didn't really know who Jason Isaacs was before Potter. It, like his filmography hadn't really crossed my radar, and I'm so glad that he did because he's just he's amazing. He's such an amazing guy. Um, but seeing him and seeing Ken Branner being this sort of camp fluffy person when we're so used to all this boring Shakespeare. Uh, <laughs> um, I'd love to have worked with Emma Thompson. Uh, like, I met her very briefly as Trelawney. Uh, I'd like to have done more with Imelda Staunton because she was just pure evil. Like, the, I see that, I watch that film and I see her in it and just the loathing rises in me. She's so good. Um, yeah, all of them. All of them. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yo. Hey, man. Um, I'm Josh. I'll get right to it. I know we're out of time. Um, as somebody who, who acted through this, this entire series and experienced different directors, what do you think makes a great director? That's a good question from asking me, who's just directed for the first time. Well, there we go. Um, yes. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I've just, yeah, I've just, done, I've just directed a short film uh, called Dad, which is part of a sort of new, getting people into jobs that they hadn't done, sort of stepping up thing at the BBC in Wales uh, so uh, anyone who has bootleg access to iPlayer uh, <laughs> it will, it'll be on later in the year and I'll, it'll be all over my social media I'll tell you about it then it's called Dad and it's a really really lovely film um, it's a bit like Billy Elliot set in Wales just put it that oh. um, what makes a good director I think letting the actors make their decision let the actors make their decisions um, and then sort of work out how to direct them into making the film that you're trying to make. Um, when, you start, when you start literally directing traffic, when you start going, right, okay, so you come on over here, and then as you're saying, first years follow me, you're doing this. Like, that's not directing, that's like 
that's choreographing. That's a totally different skill. What you want to do as a what I found as a director is you want your actors to do what feels right and natural, because that's the way you're going to get the best performance out of them. If they're doing something that feels like the obvious choice. If the obvious choice is wrong, then you've got a bit of an issue and you've probably cast the wrong person in the part. And then what you have to do is kind of work out how you get what feels right and natural to them into this storyboarded, thought-out plan of how your day and your film is going to turn out. And that's, I think that's the tricky bit, is kind of going, okay, this is what they're giving me. How can I fit that around what I'm trying to get from them and it as a whole? And that's where it, yeah, that's where it becomes really fun. Awesome. Um, it's, it's hard work. I've never been so stressed in my life. Um, somebody said to me, did you enjoy directing? And I said, yes, in the same way that you enjoy it when somebody stops repeatedly punching you in the face for 12 hours. Um, but it's really good. It's a great feeling. I'd recommend it to everybody. Try it once. Yeah. Well, congrats. That's the directing, not the punching in the face. All right, we have time for just one more. Sorry to everyone else in line. All right, Shannon Ravenclaw. My question is, your friend, your childhood gender friend who wrote a letter to be Ron, what happened? Uh, that's a good question. He, well, he, he never heard back. The, the short answer to that is, I think he works for Barclays Bank. <laughs> um, still vaguely in touch, but yeah. yeah. Do you think that there's any parallels with what would have happened if you hadn't heard back? I have no idea. Um, I don't... I try... Weird. I, every now and then, people say, what would you have done if you hadn't... I have no, I literally no idea. Like... I was 16, I'd, I'd kind of decided I wanted to be an actor. I think I'd probably be teaching drama somewhere because that seems like the next sort of default. My, both my parents were teachers. If I'd wanted to be an actor, I'm not... By no means am I the best actor in the world. I'm quite good at this and quite good at that. I'm all right. Like, I, can, I can bluff my way through, and I can certainly bluff my way through Percy cause, just because I know him so well. But like, I, I would not want to say I was one of the world's best actors and I don't know that I'd necessarily have ever been successful at it if it wasn't for Harry Potter um, but what Harry Potter's taught me is that I've, I've learned new things and I'm taking it to different places that aren't acting uh, if I hadn't have had Harry Potter I'd have probably gone to try and go to drama school maybe I'd have got into drama school maybe I'd have tried to be an actor and not really done that well and probably ended up teaching I'm glad yeah. you're not working at Barclays Bank me too <laughs> I failed GCSE maths. Like, you don't want me near. <laughs> you don't want me with your money. Thank you so much to everyone for joining us today. Thank you, Chris, for your time. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate you coming. All right, friends. Thank you so much for listening to our Leaky Con interview with Chris Rankin, a.k.a. Percy Weasley, a.k.a. the chronic masturbator, Weatherby. That's right. <laughs> Moving the bishop, I believe, is what he called it. <laughs> Playing chess with just the bishop. Yeah. yeah. We hope you had fun today, and we hope you join us. Yes. On Monday, August 27th, when we will be beginning oh my God. our 10-part deep dive into Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, Jason's favorite book. Don't you remember what we've done? Are we not the podcast that's been going through all the Harry Potter books in bunches of chapters for several months? I just asked you if the bed looked comfortable enough for you in here. I mean, 